Hi, welcome to the Givergy podcast. I'm Ben, Givergy COO. And for those of you who don't know who we are, we're fundraising experts who provide fundraising technology and consultative advice to organisations looking to raise more at events and online. We're excited to share our fundraising best practices, tips and tricks through this medium. So sit back and enjoy the show. In today's episode, we will be continuing our new podcast series based around thought leadership that invites game changers from the industry to share their stories, inspire charities to think differently, be bolder and look for new ways to fundraise. Today, we're delighted to be joined by international speaker, author and CEO of the Ollie Foundation, Debbie Roberts. Debbie has been CEO of Ollie for over three years and a charity dedicated to delivering suicide awareness, intervention and prevention training by empowering professionals and young adults in their own communities to lead suicide prevention activities. And just as a warning, a content warning, we will be discussing um, suicide and suicidal um, ideation on this particular session. So we just wanted to let you know before the podcast starts. So first of all, Debbie, hi, how are you doing? Oh, hello. hello. I'm okay. Thank you very much. I'm well. I'm excited to be here. But uh, the truth is that on any given day, I'm also sad, hopeful, terrified, grateful, disappointed, bored, tired, relieved, (laughs) nervous, desperate for a hug from my kids, because like everyone else, we've just gone through the first three chapters of our own pandemic horror story and to the backdrop of global warming racial hatred and tension and unless you're listening as a signed up member of the Taliban in which case yay but also the fall of Afghanistan so I think we're all a bit tired this week. (laughs) Yeah I I, I couldn't agree more he's been so many highs and lows over this last 18 months and I think yeah the last I think the last few weeks especially it's all of a sudden so much is happening around the world again and there's so much concern so yeah I, I totally hear you. So for our listeners as well, Debbie, whereabouts in the UK are you based? So I'm actually in Hertfordshire in a lovely little place called St Albans and uh, specifically from a very small room that I've spent the last 18 months working from. But uh, yeah, so that's where we are, St Albans in Hertfordshire. Fab. Okay, so I think that's classed as the home counties and it's, um, it's a really beautiful area of the UK. Yes, yes, I am really grateful to live where I can get out to Bluebell Woods and, and see nature and, and, yeah, incredibly grateful to have somewhere on my doorstep where I can can actually enjoy nature because I know so many people during this really difficult time have, have not had that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So before we, we kind of dive into to the actual, you know, the podcast and what we're going to be talking about today, it'd be really good to learn a little bit more about you and your history in, um, you know, everything you've, you've achieved, but also in the charitable side. So it'd be great to just know where, where did it all start? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> where did it start? I guess. I guess from childhood. You know, I've always had a deep, unwavering interest in human nature. And I was particularly interested in how thoughts work. I was really interested in how people can be the best version of themselves in the public setting. Charming, eloquent, funny, but in private, we can be a complete wreck. So I was always interested in that. How come we can be the best versions of ourselves in one setting, but not so much in another? And of course, like everyone, you know, what is happiness? What is the meaning of life? So these are questions 
that have actually always sat with me. And they've taken me on a bit of a magical mystery tour. For instance, I have been deeply interested in fractals and fractals in behaviour. I'm interested in epigenetics, but I'm interested in the epigenetics of emotion. But I guess always coming back to how do we live and die well? And I'm personally intrigued, mystified, terrified of death and want to ensure I can make the most of life and help others to do so too. And I had a thirst for neuroscience. I mean, that that really was the thing that that drove me on. I'd read hugely around the subject. I mean, I just devoured anything that I could read that helped me to answer these questions. And it actually wasn't until my 40s that I decided to go to university. I'd done some pretty amazing stuff. I set up a small school. I, I Yeah, I'd done all sorts of things that, that actually were great, but I didn't really feel I found my purpose. So yeah, I went off to university in my 40s, three children at home to study for a master's in neuroscience and emotional intelligence. I went to an amazing institution where I learned loads of stuff. But if I'm honest, not necessarily the kind of things you might expect, because I actually knew a lot about the subject. But of course, like any good degree, I learned who had had the thoughts that I had had, who had had them first, where had they come from, who had they had uh, inspired. I learned the rigours and discipline of study and research and data. And oh, my God, don't we love data? And whatever skills I had in writing, they were in full, they were enhanced just dramatically by writing a pretty long thesis. In fact, I think my 20,000 word dissertation felt very measly because at one point I had 80,000 words. So, trying to drill that down, which is what uh, that kind of study does for you. You have to be able to say things efficiently. And probably I'm not doing that too well right now in this interview, but that's, you know, part of what it teaches you. And and actually those 80,000 words came in very useful because around that time I actually got a book deal. So, yeah, things just continued on. I didn't want to be the kind of, I mean, I had aspirations to be an academic of sorts, but I didn't want to be someone who gave lectures. But the last time they actually worked with young people was 20 years ago because that's another generation. So as part of my master's, I, I took on a part time job with a youth work team in a local county council because I really wanted to be up to date with what was going on for kids right now. I wanted to be on the ground. And actually, that provided so many opportunities for me to spread my wings. And what was a part time job that was driven by my academic research actually became a job I stayed in for over 10 years. I wrote a number of well-being programs for them. I had the opportunity of writing for the Royal Society of Public Health. And I was just so fortunate that I was able to create the work that deeply interested me. So doing that degree later on in my life really shaped the opportunities for work, which is why I guess most people do a, a degree anyway. It enhanced enormously what I what I was already learning about and it connected me with a group of people who felt the same and we became each other's lighthouses really because you know what we were learning around 15 years ago is unbelievably still feels cutting edge in some circles you know we still hear people like big news trauma-informed schools and learning about emotional intelligence and how how we process emotion and how that can support in education so I like to think of us as as pioneers who made a difference at the time to the children we were working with. 
Yeah, um, so I, I think that gives a flavour of how it all came to be. No, it definitely did. And I can imagine as well, you know, going to university in your, in your 40s after having children and, and have lived, you know, have already lived a part of your life. It must give you such a different perspective to, you know, going to do that master's at the age of, I don't know what you'd be, like 23, 23 24. Because you've actually lived, isn't it? Like life experience is so, gives such a different perspective, doesn't it, to everything when you've actually, you know, like you said, felt that emotion, felt those feelings to then be able to learn an advanced level of them. Absolutely. You know, when I, when I was 18, I was not ready for university. I just don't think I could have uh, taken it on. I didn't know who I was. And, I, and you know, when I look at kids today, and, and I, I must say all three of my children went to university and I, I'm I'm so in awe of them because when you go it, at the end of your teens, as you're emerging into adulthood, you're working out who you are. And I didn't have any of that. I knew I didn't know who I was, but I was good with that. And the whole purpose of being there was to study. There was no distraction at all. And I'm not saying for a moment that when we go off to university at the traditional type of age, uh, you're not going there to study. But there is all that making connections, finding out who you are. And those were definitely things that I didn't have to worry or think about. Yeah, no, I can, I can totally imagine and I think one thing that's, you know, that's very apparent, every, you know, when we initially met and I've, I watched one of your videos as well, you know, you are extremely dedicated to mental health and, and particularly as well, suicide. What has really driven you? Because I know you've got an interest in the way the mind works and the way the emotions and, and, and all of that side. Yeah. But what has got you to home in specifically in this area? Um, I guess it's 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 a number of things. I've never been afraid of difficult or challenging scenarios or conversations it doesn't mean I seek them out and it doesn't mean I necessarily enjoy them but but I'm not afraid of them and so many people are really afraid of mental illness and particularly suicide one of the things we, we often find ourselves saying at Ollie is it's a bit like Voldemort you know people are afraid to mention the name so so that's one thing I had going for me I didn't have that fear and also because there are so few people talking about this, it was easy, you know, to to, be, to get that platform. And, and the truth of the matter is, with the greatest respect to, to all my colleagues who are working so hard in the field, there are a lot of conversations that, that are needing to be changed. Some of the things we say don't make sense. I mean, we, we talk about mental health when actually we mean mental illness, we approach suicide as if it's a mental illness, when in fact it's a behaviour and more often not a death of despair, because we think things are complicated when often they're less complicated. It doesn't mean that they're easy, but they're not they're not as complicated as we might think. But here's the thing. The complications exist because they're beyond our remit, beyond the remit of an A&E consultant who can't fix your redundancy, your broken heart, your jealousy, your unemployment, your housing crisis. Sadly, we, for many people, it feels like our trauma has been medicalized. Our trauma and despair, somehow, for a lot of people, it seems that the only route is to be fixed by a pill. And sometimes that is definitely helpful, but not always. So I think few people understand the simplicity and power of connection. And that, that actually connection can be powerfully simple in suicide prevention. Yeah. And, and, and that makes total sense. I think one thing that I, I think would be really good for our listeners as well is because, you know, we, we work with, you know this, we work with thousands of charities all around the world and we're really yes. fortunate to be in that position. 
but we also you know we work with lots of different people in lots of different positions who have all gone through um you know different things in their careers or their own personal life and i think you know when you when you said about you know suicide isn't you know a mental illness it's a behavior i think one thing that would really help is to if you would be able to share your story in terms of you know your friends in australia and and how that came to be because i think that is so important how how you approached that and how it, how that kind of story has evolved and and, and that that kind of theory behind it because i think it could it could definitely help so many people that are listening oh thank you so much for asking about that and 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 just again to remind those listening that this is an inspirational story but it starts with a tragedy so it it's quite a tough one as well to hear so i had a best Well, I had actually, I was very lucky. I had a few best friends growing up. One of them was a lovely guy. And when I started in uh, the workplace, I met this lovely girl and I thought, wow, those two would get on. And they did. And they fell in love and they got married and they raised three beautiful boys. And three years ago, they rang me to tell me that their eldest had taken his life. And it was it's hard to say those words right now. It was truly devastating and shocking for everybody at the time. Of course, of course. So, you know, when you hear news like that, there's a very visceral response. I, I mean, I literally felt sick the entire, well, for the next few days, for sure. But it was a few days later when I got a phone call from a family who, whose grown-up daughter, who was the same age as my son's friend, who had just two days before taken his life, they rang me because she had been struggling with with really a sense of overwhelm. She hated herself. She hated her life. Everything in her life was just not how she wanted it to be. And on this particular day, she was done. And she'd been to see her GP, who who had done everything that they could and, and had asked this young woman to wait at home while the emergency mental health team came to assess her, which they did, and they did exactly what they're supposed to do. But that evening, that young woman was still at home feeling suicidal. Now, her family knew about some of my work. They knew that I I did a lot of work around goal setting, uh, conflict resolution. And of course, I worked in the area of suicide prevention and they rang and, uh, and, and they, you know, they said, you literally can't make the situation worse. But is there anything you could do to make the situation better? I had said, you know, if she's willing to talk to me, then 100%, let's get together. I think it was about eight o'clock in the evening. So so it was quite late. Now, she said yes. Not only did she say yes, she was like, can we come now? I knew the minute, the minute she said that, I knew my work was half done because the reality was she didn't want to die. It was just she didn't know how to live. And those are not the same thing. And, you know, that that really is part of, of everything around my work is is that understanding that for some people, it, it, it's not that they want to die. In fact, in many cases, they just don't know how to continue living. So I met with this young woman and, you know, it wasn't a 10 minute consultation. It was two hours, roughly. But during those two hours, We had a conversation that was scaffolded by these techniques that I'd been using for years around um, looking at the conflict, conflict resolution, and then our goal setting. And essentially, the conflict for her was to die, not to die. That was the conflict, you know, at its base level. And she agreed that was the conflict she was facing. So my next question was to understand why. 
why the two sides? Why do you want to die and what's stopping you? Because there has to be at least one thing, one reason why you're here now and not already dead. So she explained her two needs, which were actually very honourable, very simple things. On the one hand, she wanted to die because she could not bear the continual self-hatred, played on a loop 24-7, and, and she couldn't take it anymore. Not only did she have the self-hatred, she was so worn down by her own thinking, she'd lost the capacity to have any efficacy in her life. She didn't know how to put one foot in front of another anymore. So why hadn't she ended her life? Well, the only reason she had or at least the only reason she shared with me was that she didn't want to hurt her parents. She didn't want to cause them the pain she knew her death would cause. So clearly there's a conflict because you can't die and be alive at the same time. But what I wanted to do was shift her attention to focus on the needs. Were the needs in direct conflict? And they weren't. You know, it was possible to stop the thoughts in her head and not to hurt her parents. So I asked her if she could have both of those things at the same time, which clearly right now she didn't. But if she could, what would it feel like? And she said she'd feel content. So we we actually have a goal. The goal is to feel content. So great. Now we moved on to another process, which is this goal setting process that I use so much. And in this process, you know, a lot of times when, when we have a goal, when we have something quite big that we want to achieve. Many times people start with the to-do list and that's that's useful, but it's actually step four. In the science of goal setting, we know that there are some significant steps that have to happen beforehand, one of which is being really honest and clear what is currently stopping you from reaching your goal. Because if you could feel content, if she could feel content, she would be. So what right now was getting in her way? And she gave me a list of obstacles that were powerful and some felt much bigger than the others. But we wrote them down. And the next step in this process is to imagine that you've jumped forward in time. Now, depending on who you're speaking to, you can agree what that time is. It could be next week, next month, next year. I think with this young woman, it was something like three months. We imagined in three months time, if this problem no longer existed, what would it feel like? And we did that with every single problem or every single obstacle towards feeling content. So what we had essentially done was we, we, we had looked at the conflict. We'd imagine what the best scenario would be, which is to feel content. We looked at what was stopping her, which she was clearly aware of. But what she couldn't visualise was what it would be like without that. Remember, she had lost all efficacy in her own life. She literally didn't know how to, to do anything anymore or didn't have the energy or didn't have the belief that she could do any better. And some of the things on her list were not, were not that challenging. It just needed a little bit of help to think it through. So this process obviously takes a little bit of time and there are steps to it. But essentially, we finished this off. It left her with a really clear, robust plan for how she could manage her life. And it was unbelievable, really, that, you know, two hours, she arrived with a clear intention and the resources and the plan to end her life that, that evening. And two hours later, she was now full of hope. And she was no longer suicidal. But this is one of the things that, you know, we see many times that people 
when they're feeling suicidal, the, the thing that they've lost, the thing that most people who are suicidal have in common is, is the lack of hope. And what we had done was was actually given her back that hope because they were her words. They were her solutions. All we had done was scaffold the process. And what's so amazing is that anyone can learn this process mm-hmm. to use for themselves or with others. It's just joyful, really. And, and, you know, if it hadn't been for Elliot, and I just want to pay my respects to Elliot Strickland, because... I don't know if I would have been brave enough on that Monday evening to take that call and say, yes, I can do something. But because of the pain my, my very close friends were going through, I it was like nothing was going to stop me. I didn't care if I was going to get sacked. And remember, I work for children's services. I mean, we are tied up left, right and centre in straitjackets around safeguarding. So everything that I was about to do was probably not what anyone would approve of but I didn't care and I just knew that we were not going to lose another person not on my watch and so it gave me the sort of extra fuel to to do something that I thought could be helpful I I mean the parents had given me permission don't forget they had said you literally couldn't make it worse so it was it was like all points came together and We've used that process several times since. In fact, as I said, this process comes from a business methodology. Um, It's a methodology that is used in all kinds of organizations around the world. Big organizations like the NHS, like the American Air Force, but also huge organizations. I mean, Amazon, every manager, my understanding anyway, is that every manager receives the book, The Goal, which is the seminal piece of work from this methodology because they understand how important these tools are. So for those of you that are listening, I do encourage you to look up the theory of constraints because all of this work came from that body of knowledge. And it's it's amazing in business uh, for turning businesses and, and charities are in the business of charitable work. So it's an, an incredibly versatile tool. It's used in education I use it in personal development and suicide prevention, but really quite large businesses are using it to ensure that they can flourish. So, um, yeah, that that was my story. Oh, wow. And, and I know I've, I've heard it before every single time, you know, when, when you, I, I've, you've actually told me twice because I also watched your video and I just find it so it's so emotional, but also so inspiring. Like you said, it's the and you've gone from there and then you've been able to help that person and now I'm sure you know thousands of us so it's a massive well done to you and and to be able to do what you do with the Ollie Foundation is is hats off from I'm sure everybody that's listening as well but I think what's really poignant in or sorry in terms of what you just said was that you know she took the call just taking the call as soon as you said it I thought you, you don't want to die yeah. And it, it's it's so true because I've I've um I I've been linked to people really really close to me that have, have definitely considered suicide, and I remember being in that house in that situation and watching it. And although that person was in absolute despair, completely lost hope, and we were all thinking, "Oh my God, what are we going to do?" But I knew that she didn't want to die because she made the phone call to ask for help. And it's it, you know, but those, those steps you're just talking about wasn't there. And, and, and it, it, luckily, this person didn't pass away. But it's just, it just shows you, doesn't it, where sometimes people go into the, you know, 
they're going to health, they go to get, sorry, like A&E or emergency rooms or that kind of stuff. And, and people aren't educated or trained on, mm-hmm. on that, which you will understandably as well, because they're also happy to, you know, save your life and work on your heart or whatever that is as well. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you know, for everyone listening, please do have a look at that book. And and, and you mentioned before this, the kind of, the, the, you were saying a moment ago, like step four, just in a bullet point format so anyone could take away. What what are the four steps just to remind everybody that you were saying in terms of that process? I know the first one was looking at, okay, what are the hurdles or barriers that are stopping you getting there? Okay. So, what the other ones? Right. So the first step is to clearly define your goal. Now, that seems so obvious that it doesn't even need to be said. But here's here's the truth of the matter. And I'm actually I'm delivering this session on Friday afternoon. I deliver it probably once a month. And you will be surprised how many times people get stuck there because you're going to be putting a lot of effort into this this plan. So you better make sure it's a goal that you want. And, you know, sometimes the truth of the matter is that our goals are not ours. They're other people's. So we might have a goal around what we have to achieve at work or what we have to achieve in school. And quite frankly, those aren't necessarily our own goals. And that's where goal setting becomes quite tricky. It's something called self-concordance, which is when our values are aligned to our goals. And if they're not, we have to work just a little bit harder to work out, well, why is it I need to do this thing? Anyway, step one, clearly define your goal. And The neuroscience of language really comes in here. And maybe it's not just neuroscience. There are lots and lots of different methodologies. I'm I'm thinking now of I'm thinking of something and I can't think of the name. So I'm going to move on very quickly. It will come to me. But um, but let me give you an example. So let's think of an A-level student who wants to get to university to say I need three A's. That's a clearly defined goal. But it's almost too, it, it's got really clear boundaries around it. What if we changed it to, I get the grades I need to go to university? Because you could get two A's and a B and still get your place at university, but you wouldn't have achieved your goal because your goal was to get three A's. So being clear what your goal is, but not in a way that ties you up is important. So that's step one. And as I say, it, it's, It feels like it shouldn't need any help or thought, but it sometimes does. Step two, what currently is getting in your way? So step two is being clear about your obstacles. And this is the game changer. We have students come on our training. We have professionals. We have teachers. We have doctors. We have so many counsellors come on this training. And most of them know very, very well different strategies around goal setting. But this is the this is the step that nearly everyone misses. And this is the step that people that come on to our training say, oh my gosh, it's so obvious. I can't believe I didn't think of it. What is currently getting in your way? What is stopping you? What are the obstacles? And you know what? In most cases, at least half the obstacles we face are internal obstacles. Our fear of failure, our fear of success, our procrastination, time constraints. So again, clarity over language writing time as an obstacle isn't going to be very helpful 
because there will be many it, it's sort of an umbrella term we're really good at shorthand aren't we? we we just write little words they're meaningful to us and we've learned that haven't we you know just to be quick get things done but in this process we need to be slow and we need to pull everything apart so we need to pull apart what do we mean by time because each one of those obstacles within that time is going to need a different solution later on in the process just to give you an example, again, that's just a simple example. If pre-COVID, I wanted to be at the office by eight, but I had to make three packed lunches, walk the dog. And actually, I quite like to do a yoga class before I leave. There are a lot of different conflicts for my time. So if I just write time as an obstacle, that's not going to give me a solution for the dog or the packed lunches. It's it's going to give me a general solution, but not specific to the things that are really getting in the way. And that's, I think, why this tool is so useful, because it, it really deals with what is the truth for each individual. So that's the next step. Step three is this feels whimsical. It feels like it's a bit silly, but it's incredibly powerful. So step three is imagining this point in the future where the these obstacles either no longer exist or they didn't happen. Maybe it was something you were afraid of or you, you thought could get in the way, but it actually hasn't materialized. Whatever it is, we imagine ourselves on this date in the future where none of these things exist. And then we give a description of that situation now that it is no longer a problem. So, for instance, I don't have enough money to buy a laptop. Let's say that was an obstacle. Yeah. We're looking at our future reality and we are making a very clear statement in the future. I have a laptop. I have the money I need to buy a laptop or I have a laptop, however you want to word yeah. it. It's a very, very powerful thing, because if you can't imagine it, it's so much harder to work towards it when you can. Look at this future where you've got the laptop, you've got the money you need, you've got all these obstacles. They're no longer obstacles. You have this incredible list of things that you've achieved. It actually makes it more possible. It certainly changes your attitude. The next step, well, that's the one where we need to do quite a bit of work, because now we need to imagine and think through, what actually are all the steps I'm going to have to take to achieve having a laptop? So we're sort of jumping back and forth, but it's very, very powerful. So now we've written all the different actions we need to take to make that current, sorry, to make that future reality our current reality. We then need to plan them out. And if if anyone wants to know more about this, we, we run these sessions, as I say, probably on a monthly basis. And also you can just look up TOC and you'll find lots of information on the web freely available. Of it no and it's it's it, it may isn't it funny just just breaking it down like that in your head i was it's like i was actually t- taking myself through my own personal issues then and i was like yeah okay i'm there and it's it's really it's really interesting isn't it how you you then can when you imagine it and then you think of the hurdles it's yeah it's a, it's a really good way of doing it so thank, thank you again for sharing that it can be really effective and i will just say in case anyone's like oh okay i'm gonna go and do this one one last note Sometimes you look at an obstacle and you can't imagine a future where this is no longer a problem. Now, although the goal that you have written is is probably an amazing goal and definitely you want to work towards it right now, you might want to push it to one side 
And whatever that obstacle is that feels so big, you can't even reframe it. Make that your goal. And when you do this and if you come across this, you'll understand. But um, and to give you an example, I was running this training with some with a group of adults and one of them had the goal of getting to work on time. And of course, you know, it's not our place to judge. And, and it, but it, it's it's hard not to have sub judgments over things. And I, I'll be honest with with you and all the listeners. I was a bit unsure. Why could this grown man why was his goal to get to work on time? Because it felt like that's something he should be able to do. Yeah. So um, anyway, we worked on it. He worked on it. But just in my head, I was thinking that there's something here that, that just doesn't feel right. And you do get a bit of an intuition for these things, too. Anyway, we went through this process. And, and like I was just sharing with you, we did hit an obstacle that he just that just didn't make sense. And and the beauty of this tool is it's non-confrontational. So you're simply pulling things apart and looking at why. What why is that the case and what can we do to overcome it? Yeah. And in the end, to cut a long story short, his obstacle to getting to work on time was actually he was an alcoholic. And he couldn't conceive of a time that he would be able to get to drive to work because it was a new job so this is what he was saying originally I'm just nervous that I, I won't get there on time I don't know the way but the reality he he eventually shared for himself was he was an alcoholic and there would he wouldn't have the alcohol in his bloodstream would not have left sufficiently for him to be able to legally drive in the morning so you can imagine how he started his goal, his original goal of getting to work on time. It's changed very dramatically. Yeah, that's it's really interesting how it got to the like, you know, at least then he admitted his truth and, and got to that point. And, and then a warning because Ben, if you use this and anyone listening who uses this, you will get to your truth. If you follow the process, it gets to the core problem very quickly, which is why in two hours we were able to support a woman who was clearly clear that she was going to end her life. Within two hours, she was now hopeful and, and, and the thought of ending her life, that had gone. Would you say so? Absolutely. And the, you're going to laugh now. There's, um, there's something in my life that I've started to adapt. There's, um, have you, do you know RuPaul, the, yes. uh, the drag queen? Absolutely. <laughs> well, he's all about, he, he has his own mantras and, um, one thing that he always talks about is your inner saboteur. And yes. I'm, really, I'm really starting to listen to that because I, I find in my life that we can all do it. You have an, All of us obviously have an inner saboteur that's trying to beat you up and he's trying to say, no, you're going to fail or no, this is going to happen. Or for you to just, you know, to dwell in that, that anger or that moment. And it's something recent, last 12 months, I've really started to recognise it and be like, no, you know what, shut up. And exact, that is actually, that's not true. And it's yeah. just, it's really funny. Everything, he always talks about it on his shows. And I'm really starting to listen to it now. And, and sorry, starting to recognise when I'm going there. And I just wanted to share that. Because I think when you think about the kind of like, like a person, you sometimes, it happened like I think two days ago. And I was really like, I was really, um, what's the word, stewing in this problem. And I was, I was thinking, I'm me. I, I'm normally quite, you know, I can, I, I'm a problem solver naturally. But then, I, but I was, it was like I wanted to stay there, and I was like, "No, shut up! <laughs> I actually want to be over here." So I just wanted to share that. I don't think it would help people, but did you get where I'm going with that, Debbie? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, so, you know, those obstacles, that list will, will include all of that. And, but I would extend that. So I'm going to put on my big, my big hair now and my makeup and my full suit. <laughs> um, yeah. So imagine me, but you know, that, that inner saboteur is actually part of your survival system. So you could move from telling it to shut up, which is a, a great strategy and going, no, I'm not listening. But but when the time is right, you could also look at it and say, OK, why did I think that that was a useful strategy? What was it protecting me from? Yeah. Because most of the things we do that trip us up originally were a helpful strategy when we were a child or at some point in our life. And we've outgrown that now. But it still sits there being that inner saboteur. But one of the things that I've learned recently and really understood is to be more compassionate to my body, uh, to literally my cells, to every part of my body. Because I'll share a, a private story with you, too, which is I, I live with a number of health conditions. So, you know, I often hear myself going, oh, this body, you know, you should only know what I have to put up with. And uh, next time round, I'm coming with a better body. And somebody said to me, what must it be like to be your body and hear that hatred all the time? Which isn't too dissimilar to what you're saying. No, totally, yeah. And and I just thought, oh, my gosh, you know, we need a team talk. You know, we have team talks at work, don't we? And it's go team. And I thought, my body needs a bit of a team talk. So, yeah, being a little bit more compassionate for ourselves and understanding that those those self-saboteur type behaviors were once protective behaviors or they were they were developed because we thought they'd protect us but actually they're not very useful at all and you know what one final um this is actually for you debbie one final rupaul quote which okay. he, he says at the end of every every episode is if you can't love yourself how the hell do you expect anybody else to do so absolutely absolutely it's, it's, yeah it's so true, isn't it? Because I keep thinking that sometimes when you get to that point, and I think, hang on, so I want this, I want this person to love me, but actually I'm so, you know, you beat yourself up so much. And it's those those little quotes sometimes that you need to go back to and go, hang on, that's true. If I'm putting it out there, even though it's my own body or my own self, you, you're just damaging yourself by keep saying those kind of things. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as a, as a young person, as a child, as a young woman, compared to where I am now my understanding of what that means has changed so much so as a child when when people used to talk about loving yourself and I used to think well that's incredibly selfish and indulgent and it I just didn't understand what they meant they literally couldn't understand it just felt wrong because I I didn't understand so I, I it's it's a bit like having um, a pair of sunglasses that are tinted you know, if you don't get something, you're just not going to see it. And the minute you get it, you can't understand why you didn't see it before. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. So thank you for sharing those for that as well. That's, that, I think that's going to help so many people that are listening. And oh, what we're going to do now is we're going to focus a little bit more on the actual Ollie Foundation itself as well. OK. So, is it three years you've been at the Ollie Foundation now? Well, I've I've actually was um, yes, I've been the CEO for three years, but I was involved with uh, as a trustee before that. And how have you found you know being CEO of the Oni Foundation through through a global pandemic with the work that you're also that you're trying to do? It's actually been quite incredible. If I go back to before COVID 
hit. Nobody, nobody in suicide prevention was working online. And if you dared even suggest such a thing, you were almost marched out of the building. You know, how can you do this in a sensitive way? How can you do it in a compassionate way with all the safeguarding you need to do? People just couldn't comprehend. Now, there's a, a quote that I particularly love, and it does come from Dr. Ellie Goldratt, who is the creator of, of, of the processes that we've just been talking about earlier, the goal setting and conflict resolution process. But he said, what we do in an emergency, we probably should have been doing all the time. And for sure, I would think, every, well, most organisations have learned that. I mean, you know, what we've achieved in the last 18 months is, and I'm, I'm not saying we, Ollie, but everybody has actually been quite incredible. Now, I shared with you just a moment ago that I actually live with a few health conditions. So my radar is very finely tuned to certain things. and Mid-February last year, I was getting very twitchy about this this virus that seemed to be over there, wherever over there was. But by the beginning of March, it was very, very clear to me. If we can't be relevant to our community, we, we won't exist. And actually, we have no right to. And what does being relevant mean? It means being accessible. And what does access look like in a global pandemic? So within a couple of weeks, we had moved everything that we could to an online provision from having nothing, not delivering anything online at all to having everything online. And in the last 18 months, we have connected, trained and spoken with around 5000 people. That's more than all the people we ever trained in the years before. So. The pandemic has been obviously hideous and we, we all just want it to end and we all wish it hadn't started. But there have been some learnings from it. And being a very small charity actually gave us the ability to be very nimble and very agile. You know, working in children's services um, for a big, you know, in the county council, I absolutely understand the need for rigour and to protect everyone. But what, what that often means is meeting after meeting and waiting for someone to sign off on something and to check everything is in place. And for very good reason. In a tiny charity like the Ollie Foundation, we didn't have all of that. That's not to say we didn't have safety checks, but it's just there's only a few of us. So, you know, I'll pick up the phone or I'll ask somebody and job done. The point is we could be agile and we could move quickly to address the needs that we saw in our community. So Ollie during the pandemic has just been nonstop growth and learning and working out how we can be viable in a world where we, we, we have to do this. We have to connect online. And I'm, I'm so proud of everyone at Ollie and everything we've achieved. Because we have proved, with, proven without a doubt, like, like many others, that you can do this work online. It can be effective. It can be deeply, deeply supportive. And actually, all the fears we had, they've just evaporated like a cloud. When you just said it, 5,000 people. Yeah. Um, like more than you've ever trained before. It just, it just shows, doesn't it? And that's where that barrier's gone now. You, you can now you can now help so many more than you've ever been able to help before, and that's where like you know when you when I've I've had other people in my life who really really suffer with mental health, and the and the access to support is always because you've got to try and get an in person session, 
and they're like, oh, there's a nine-week week waiting list or a four-month waiting list. And you're like, hang on, this person's to that point. Where now there's all these online resources, it just it just opens it up massively, doesn't it? So, and, and again, to, to you and your team, um, hats off again, a massive well done, because 5,000 people during a global pandemic is, is, an, is a phenomenal amount as well. It, it really is. And I'm so proud to tell you that we, you know, it's just connection, just things like on LinkedIn, you see somebody who's doing some work and you, you just send them a little note. You just reach out to them and, hey, presto, you're teaching 30 mental health volunteers in Nepal. Or we've trained two of the biggest uh, mental health volunteer teams in South Africa. We even trained a whole teaching body for a small little forest school in Nicaragua. Now, we wouldn't have done any of that we wouldn't have dreamed it possible had it not been for what we found we could do because we were forced to as ellie said what you do in an emergency probably should have been doing it all the time definitely and and, and in terms of the way the foundation works is it is it by referrals like can you know if, if this is a charity member of staff or the, they're working with a group of people do you, does it some kind of work like that sometimes as well so the main body of our work is is training others. So we're not a crisis line and we don't work directly with people who, who are themselves struggling with suicidal ideation, at least not officially. Officially, what we're doing all the time is talking, 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 sharing knowledge with students, with professionals, with parents. And we provide a whole range of training and talk. So when I when I came into Oli, we were set up by three parents who had all lost a son to suicide. They they met in bereavement counselling and they vowed to do everything they could to stop someone else going through what they were going through. And so they looked at well, where do our kids where do they spend most of their time? And and for most children, most of the time they're in school. I know that's not true for everyone, but generally speaking. So they looked at what training teachers had and teachers have incredible training on all sorts of things in terms of safeguarding, but it doesn't include suicide prevention or intervention. So that's how Ollie came to be, by the way. Um, they, they decided that they were going to train teachers and parents. Now, when I joined uh, as a trustee, one of the things I, I, I had to sort of drop off this little bomb in their world, which was to say, you know how shocked you were when you found out that teachers have no uh, statutory sort of basic training in terms of well-being and suicide intervention? Well, nor do doctors, nor did your GP, that lovely nurse, the amazing consultants in A&E that we all go to in these types of crisis, no training. This was a bit of a seismic wave. So my my interest was to move Ollie from just focusing on education, which was huge, but but also to see actually do we have a role to play beyond education? Because I think we do. And actually, do we want to only be here where someone's thrown themselves in the river, so to speak, or do we want to be a little bit upstream and stopping people falling in the river? In which case you know, the goal setting becomes not just a suicide intervention tool, but a planning tool. Because if we can teach our kids how to overcome their problems and plan to achieve their goals, well, then maybe when they come across things that, that are more difficult, they'll feel, I know I know what I can do. I, I have the tools to, to deal with this. 
And maybe they won't end up like that woman or like Elliot, who felt there wasn't anything that they could do. No, I, I get it. It's just amazing the you know the work that, that you're able to do and all all those people you're able to support. And um, I think before you, there's a lot of these a lot of these resources are available online as well. Are they publicly or is it is it how do you how do you access those? So through our website, our website is being updated. It's a little bit overloaded with content at the moment. I'm just putting that out there before anyone suggests it. But yeah, go onto our website, click on training, go onto our calendar and you will see, just click on any date or any of the training that you want. So our 90 minute, it's only 90 minutes and it's really mind blowing. But that suicide intervention training is called Talk Safe plan safe it's 90 minutes and i promise you it'll be a great 90 minutes for you if if this is important to you and we make that free we don't charge for that now we're always happy to receive a donation so if, if it's within someone's gift to to make a donation towards that place that's incredible but we made a decision as a charity during the pandemic that this shouldn't be a commodity that's traded this needs to be information that is just freely available to people so anyone that wants to come onto our talk safe plan safe training it is our gift to you and we run them every few weeks we also run the goal setting training that i spoke about and a number of other trainings and we can do, we have them as open sessions which you can book on through our website and we always 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 say if you can't afford and even when we do ask for a donation, it's really small. But we yeah. always say, if you can't afford that donation, you're coming anyway. Don't worry about it. It's sort of our job and working with great organisations like yourself to bring in and, and generate those donations so that we can give this work to the people that need it. So we have all that going on. But actually, I forgot to mention all the stuff we do in the community. So we have uh, we've taken on a, a community garden within an allotment space. And there we, we hold grief cafes for parents who have been bereaved. We run outdoor well-being sessions where we're crafting twice a week, every Wednesday morning and Friday afternoon uh, online. We run our Zentangle sessions, which are mindful art classes. And we make everything is always free to students but it's also a lot of our work is free for parents free if you work in the nhs free if you're struggling with long covid it actually becomes quite hard to pay us <laughs> to be quite honest <laughs> um, <laughs> but the zentangle is it was it felt quite whimsical initially it was part of our university well-being program that we launched last christmas we were so deeply concerned for students and we still are um, and we put on this program home for the holidays and we had all sorts of all the training that i've mentioned but we wanted to add in yoga so we were doing online yoga and these online mindful art classes well i've got to tell you ben they've become one of our most popular things and again we have people from all over the world we have two delegates who wake up at three o'clock in the morning roughly three o'clock they're in florida and canada so whatever the time difference is for a 9 30 london time session they are there every week because they love it so much People say, you know, we're isolated, we can't get out, we're struggling with our well-being, we're struggling with overwhelming thoughts. We had a PhD student throughout the whole spring and summer who came to these sessions because, you know, they had this incredible goal, but they were super stressed. And this 90 minutes gave them just that time to not think of anything 
just to follow the instruction because you're just instructed to place some dots and lines and squiggles. And then you end up with, oh, let me see. I've got some here. See if I can show you. They're tiny little pieces of artwork. I don't know if you can see wow. that. But um, we do a different thing in every session. And believe me, I have no artistic skill whatsoever. It's always surprising what, what you create. And, and um, so, yeah, we... We do so many things to support people directly through things like well-being sessions, like the goal setting and the Zentangle art. But mainly it's training. Mainly it's supporting people to know how they can support others, because it isn't that complicated. And you don't have to be a clinician with 20 years of experience. If you've not seen it, everyone listening, I urge you to download it. I think you can get it online. It's award-winning documentary, Channel 4 documentary. It's just something like half an hour, 40 minutes long, Stranger on the Bridge. Well, they're now mental health advocates, but Johnny Benjamin and, well, I won't actually even say his name, but it's the story of Johnny who one day was on a bridge in London and not sure what he was thinking in terms of whether he could stay on the planet or not. And somebody not dissimilar in age walked past and just stopped and was like, are you all right, mate? Are you okay? That's all it took. That's all it took to distract him. Yeah. So, you know, we can all, we can all do something. And for for those that want to know a little bit more, to feel a little bit more confident, because here's the thing. People are scared. I said I said earlier, it's a bit like Voldemort. People are scared to mention the name. One of the myths is that you will put an idea in someone's head or you'll you'll insult them in some way or or you'll embarrass both of you. There are only three times when you shouldn't ask if you're if you're really worried about someone, you cannot put the thought in their head unless they're high on drugs, high on alcohol or psychotic. Now, if someone's on drugs or, or drunk and they start speaking to you, then that's OK. They've initiated the conversation. But I would not initiate that conversation if, if, if somebody was, as I say, high, however they got high. And, and if they were psychotic, definitely you wouldn't be speaking to them. Apart from that. You will not make the situation worse. What you will be doing is showing someone, I can have this conversation. I can hear you. I'm prepared to listen to you. And I think, actually, that many times people aren't so worried about asking. What they're really worried about is what if the person says yes? What do I do then? Yeah, what's next? And that's what the Talk Safe, Plan Safe training gives you. It's the what you do then. So and and there's plenty of people that provide training. We are certainly not the only organization. There's lots of great training out there and and whatever you can reach and access, take it because it could be your friend or your a relative or a work colleague or just a stranger on a bridge, but you could make a difference. Brilliant. Well, Debbie, you've been absolutely amazing. You've inspired myself, I'm sure all the listeners. And again, thank you so much for joining us and and all the amazing work that you and the team at Olive Foundation do as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. We, we, We really value talking with you as well. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Well, we really hope um, that you've enjoyed today's episode and found the content really informative. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So please, as always, feel free to email podcast at giveadu.com. 
You can also make suggestions of future topics or anyone that you'd like for us to join on the show as well. And as always, please don't forget to hit subscribe. We have lots more episodes and content coming very soon. Thank you so much.